Hello, everybody, and welcome to Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. This is David Weaver, and we'll just start right off looking at the poll for last week's episode where we were talking about, um, well, last week's episode, we were talking about Burt Reynolds and Malone, but the poll was about some of the new releases we covered, and we uh, asked which of the new releases we covered are you most excited about, the choices being uh, the Audie Murphy Collection Volume 2, coming from... Kino Lorber, and then two Severn titles, Alien from the Abyss and Extraterrestrial Visitors, which turned out to be the winner. Um, that would be, you know, initially I'd say that would be kind of a, a tough call for me. All three of those I'm definitely excited for. Um, you know, Audie Murphy, Volume 2, and Extraterrestrial Visitors would definitely be, you know, they'd be kind of neck and neck there, but I would go with Extraterrestrial Visitors myself just because, if I had to pick one of those three, just because the Audie Murphy titles, even though... Um, you know, um, they're probably coming with commentary tracks, extras, I'm guessing. They are at least available, uh, worst case scenario, on Blu-ray um, in, in Europe. So you could always import those if, if Kino Lorber hadn't tackled them. I'm glad they are tackling them. It would be a lot more affordable. And like I said, it'll have bonus features and stuff. Whereas extraterrestrial visitors, like this is, the, you know, the first time this film's going to be even be remotely looking pristine. I mean, every everything we've really had to watch prior to now is just like VHS rips. So the fact that this is getting a brand new scan from the negative. And also something I didn't really fully realize, the version of um, extraterrestrial visitors that we're familiar with, usually at least the version ripped on MST3K, was a recut uh, done by Film Ventures, which was the company that distributed the movie back in the day um, and gave it the title Pod People. Film Ventures had, had this habit of taking movies, re-releasing them, changing their title, and then also chopping off the opening credits and replacing it with new credits that had like this really cheap digitized look and the new credits would play over footage from a completely different movie. So like, if you've ever seen Extraterrestrial Visitors, the Pod People version on um, Mystery Science Theater, th those opening credits are actually playing over... Uh, Galaxy Invader, which is a um, uh, a low budget uh, science fiction movie made in America by Don Dohler. Um so yeah, um, and same for the other ones that um, you know you're, you're probably familiar with some other films that um, Mystery Science Theater rift that were film ventures titles, uh, you know Cave Dwellers, which was originally titled The Blade Master, and the footage that plays over at the beginning, I forget what that's from like a '60s, a some '60s film and. Um, um, another one is the, we talked about this because of Sharon Acker's passing, The Stranger, which, you know, they, they riffed that under the film ventures, uh, title Stranded in Space, uh, Marooned became Space Travelers, uh, so and so on and so forth. So, but yeah, I would say that, that'd get my vote, but they're all three great titles, um, that were announced last week. One that I want to talk about, I forgot to mention last week, um, is one that Vinegar Syndrome is putting out, actually. So I'm sure most of you are familiar with Vinegar Syndrome, the home media label, physical media label, that uh, does fantastic restoration work. They specialize in genre cinema, a lot of like cult films, science fiction, horror, action. Um, probably, I'd say, 
you know, it's kind of a generalization, but I'd say like the mid to late seventies to like the mid nineties is their sweet spot, especially kind of like more in the middle of that time period. Um, they have done some older stuff. They only restore stuff and release stuff that's shot on film. They, you know, they don't do any titles that are digital or uh, shot on tape. Um, they also have a, um, this history of, you know, being the go-to label for uh, restoring and releasing uh, adult cinema, you know, golden age adult cinema. And they have like different um, lines of product, for example. You know, there's the regular Vinegar Syndrome line, but they also have like, for example, uh, what's called the Vinegar Syndrome Archive or VSA line, which is uh, very limited runs, uh, relatively speaking, of certain titles, which... Um, you know, tend to a lot of times to be like these like 80s action movies, uh, some other genre stuff in there too. They have the uh, Vinegar Syndrome uh, Labs line though, which is one they just started, which is kind of them kind of stepping outside the box a little. They've only released three titles in this line. And the three they put out so far are all horror movies, but they're from the 40s and 50s. So this is a lot older than the kind of product they normally put out. And they just launched this line a little while ago. All three titles so far are Universal movies. Um, the first one they announced was A Karuku Beast of the Amazon, which is this uh, 50s jungle horror movie directed by Kurt Siadmak, who's probably best known for writing the screenplay to The Wolfman. And he also wrote the novel, Donovan's Brain. And it stars Beverly Garland. And that had never had any physical media release um, at all. The second title they uh, announced was the uh, uh, the acclaimed 1940s uh, horror horror fantasy anthology, Flesh and Fantasy, which was directed by the famous French filmmaker. It was an American film, but directed by the famous French filmmaker Julien Duvivier, who had um, you know done uh, Pepe Le Moco and Tales of Manhattan. And I hadn't seen I haven't seen Kuruku. But I have seen Flesh and Fantasy, and that's definitely, you know, it's a three-piece anthology film. The first section is my favorite, but that's that's a good film. And uh, top-line cast, Charles Boyer, who's also a producer on the movie, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson, Robert Cummings. So that was the second title they announced, which that had had a, a DVD release, uh, but it was just like a bare-bones, uh, you know, uh, uh, manufacturer-on-demand disc. But the one that I had um, forgotten to talk about last week, it's their... Third entry in the series is 1946, uh, the universal horror movie, The Cat Creeps, which will be coming out on April 25th. So this movie, uh, like Karuku, never had any type of physical media release. Um, and, you know, the, the plot, the premise of the movie is kind of that classic, uh, you know, a bunch of people getting together at an old dark house. Someone's been murdered, uh, trying to figure out um, who's responsible. It's uh, thought that maybe... Um, the murder victim's cat of the title is uh, possibly even possessed by its owner's um, spirit and may play a role in solving the murder. It was directed by Earl C. Kenton, who was responsible for a number of the uh, you know Universal Monsters films, uh, directing them. Uh, he did a House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. He had done The Ghost of Frankenstein prior to those. He had also directed some of the Abbott Costello movies for Universal, had worked with W.C. Fields. One of his probably most acclaimed films was um, the 1933 horror film Island of Lost Souls, which was the first adaptation of H.G. Wells's novel The Island of Dr. Moreau, and that was done over at Paramount. Um, 
I've never seen this movie, uh, but definitely am, am very excited to check it out. You know, Universal was, of course, the the studio when it came to horror films in America for like a 15-year period. You know, they, they generally look at 1931 to 1946 as considered the golden age of horror at Universal Studios, where it really started out in 31 when they released first Dracula at the beginning of the year. Actually, I believe it was released on Valentine's Day uh, with Bela Lugosi. And then later that year came out Frankenstein with Boris Karloff, which, of course, not only were these huge hits um, and launched you know these long-running franchises, but they also turned their uh, leading men into you know horror icons. And, of course, they followed these up with films like The Mummy, um, Phantom of the Opera, the Invisible Man and, and, you know, the Wolfman in 1941. And then, of course, started intersecting these characters and, and mashing them up. And like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and, um, you know, the house movies. They also, at the same time, had the Inner Sanctum franchise going on, which was, you know, based on the radio show, which is a series of like horror-esque movies starring Lon Chaney Jr., um, so they were really known as, you know, the horror studio. But, you know, as you get later on in that time period of that, that 15 year era, the quality uh, starts kind of going downhill. The product or the budgets are going downhill, um, you know, see it to the point where you get to 1946 and like this movie, this movie was actually released on a double bill with She Wolf of London, which, uh, you know, both of these movies are only like, you know, an hour long. Um, you know, it's it kind of apparent that Universal was not investing the resources into these movies, this horror genre that they had in the past. Um, and these two, this and She Wolf of London, which were released on the same day, would basically be, the, I believe, these were the last two that Universal released, if you look at that, that time period of horror films uh, that they were known for. Um, there was one more movie which they made, The Brute Man with Rondo Hatton, um, so that that technically is the last horror movie they made, except they didn't release that when they ended up selling it to another company. Um, but it is a universal horror movie in the sense that it was made by them, uh, even though it was distributed by a different company. And you know, obviously in the fifties, they got back into the game when you you know you had this whole run on science, you know, the golden era of science fiction in the fifties. They they dove right back into both science fiction and horror, kind of horror adjacent movies you know they had the creature from the black lagoon trilogy and it came from i think it came from out of space was the first one they really did in the 50s and 53 but basically yeah from 46 to 53 they weren't really doing much in the way of horror and this was kind of at the at the end you know i don't think this movie has necessarily the greatest reputation but again it's it's a, it's a universal horror movie so you, you're going to want to check it out you know it's like a hammer film you know even if it's not considered one of Hammer's better efforts in the horror genre, you're going to want to watch it because they're so known, well known for that product. Uh, the movie's cast, not like a lot of super big names, there's a lot of um, character actors in this. Uh, Noah Beery Jr., you know, who played uh, Jim Garner's dad in The Rockford Files, um, he was in it. Uh, Lois Collier, who was headlining some movies uh, at Universal at that time, she also. Uh, well, one of the one she works at Abbott Costello there at Universal, but also outside of uh, Universal did like one of uh, the the Marx Brothers movies. But yeah, like no super huge names in this film. Interestingly, though, it was co-written by Edward Dean, who I'm a big fan of. Um, in the fifties, he directed and uh, co-wrote a movie called Shack Out on One Hundred One, which is incredible piece of pulp filmmaking for the 50s highly recommended and he was at universal actually later in the 50s uh doing genre movies like curse of the undead uh which is the western vampire movie 
and then the Leech Woman, which I've actually uh, uh, really liked that film a lot too. Um, so he kind of came back in the the late uh, later part of the fifties and early sixties to do uh, direct some uh, horror films at Universal. Um, interestingly, that was at the at that time period. That was at the tail end of their their big boom of the fifties and into the early sixties when you know they kind of had this resurgence of science fiction and horror movies at Universal. He was there at the end of that too, but. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome, they're going to do a brand new 2K transfer uh, from a 35mm Duke negative. They're going to have a commentary track on this and then a featurette about uh, Feline Frights Cats in Classic Horror, which will be uh, brought to us by way of Kim Newman, the highly regarded film critic, genre film critic. So definitely looking forward to, to finally uh, you know, checking another one of the, uh, uh, one of the last few universal horror films uh, from this era off that has not been released yet. They've mostly, there really isn't much left from that era. I mean, there there are some that kind of like, actually there are some from like the 30s that haven't gotten released yet that kind of fall into that old dark house mystery horror kind of space. So there are still a few of those. From the 40s, there's not too many though that haven't gotten released yet. I know there's, um, actually I think they've, most of them are at least on DVD. I know like The Mystery of Marie Roger, which is an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. That's been on DVD, but not Blu-ray yet. Um, but yeah, so it'll be exciting to finally, uh, kind of see one of the last missing volumes, uh, from this library, from this classic horror library. And hopefully this line of product that Vinegar Syndrome's trying out, uh, the labs line, VSL line will work out. Um, you know, I just opened up their website and this is, uh, their description of the line. They say it will quote, serve as a kind of testing area for releasing genres and eras of film that one might not immediately expect to come from VS. The ultimate objective of VSL will be to see if these types of films will find an audience, and if so, pursue and release more of them. And even if not, still serve as a means of restoring more of the weird, rare, and unusual movies you might not expect from Vinegar Syndrome. End quote. So yeah, hopefully this line performs well and they tackle more of these movies um, that Otherwise, they might not get to. Um, obviously, Vinegar Syndrome is just so highly regarded, not just in terms of the types of movies they pick, but also the quality of their transfers, the work they do. They have their own lab, um, so which also does work for other labels as well. So it's a great place for a film like this to come to be. So, yeah, hopefully that will, that will go well. All right, so what else is going on? Um, did have a couple couple cinematographers in the last week or so, a couple really well-known cinematographers who passed away. Uh, the first of whom uh, I'll just touch on real quick is Bill Butler, who lived to the grand age of uh, 101. And um, he was an Academy Award-nominated cinematographer. He, he earned his nomination for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, whose original cinematographer was Haskell Wexler, also a very famous uh, DP. But uh, at some point during the production, uh, Butler replaced Wexler, so they both ended up with the nomination. But probably the film, even though that's obviously an incredibly famous movie, the, probably the film that Butler is best known for, most identified with, is Jaws, the, you know, the original Jaws. Uh, prior to that, uh, Butler had shot two of Steven Spielberg's TV movies that he directed, uh, Something Evil and Savage. And so they collaborated again on this film. And of course, you know, just incredible photography to, you know... That, that's a movie, I was just talking about it with Jay, that holds up to this day every bit. Um, and just, you know, the cinematography, that's great. You know, just all the stuff, obviously, on the water, underneath the water. You know, the famous um, dolly zoom shot of Roy Scheider on the beach. You know, the uh, 
the stuff that's shot at like dusk and it's just incredible uh cinematography crazy that he wasn't even this film he was not nominated for he was only nominated for one film uh cuckoo's nest but this one he didn't did not get nominated for cinematography of course you know we talked uh, when I did an episode after the Oscars about, you know, obviously there's always uh, a lot of things at work in terms of getting an Oscar nomination that don't necessarily reflect what is the best of that year, but still just kind of mind-blowing that that didn't get nominated. I think at the time, I don't know, I'm guessing at the time, you know, Jaws, because it was also, there was some disappointment that Spielberg didn't get nominated for directing that. I think at the time, probably, I'm sure, much in the same way that superhero films now are trying to... Um, kind of get some of that critical acclaim uh, awards recognition I should say from the Oscars probably something like Jaws which was very genre you know it was like this almost horror-ish action film there, I'm sure there was some um, some reluctance to kind of lavish award nominations on it at the time but uh, Butler went out, had an incredible career I mean just some of the films he shot he shot uh, you know The Conversation you know the Francis Ford Coppola classic he shot Grease uh, Stripes uh, Child's Play, the first, you know, the first of the Chucky movies. He shot Rockies two, three, and four. Um, later on, you know, some of the later titles in his career uh, were like um, Anaconda. He, you know, he filmed that. Um, also, the first Hot Shots. Uh, he did a lot of um, genre movies though early in his career. Uh, movies like The Return of Count Yorga and The Death Master, and uh, also did some stuff for the small screen. He took home a couple Emmys. One for Radon and Tepe, which is a really great TV movie, all-star cast, Charles Bronson, Peter Finch, about the um, the hostage uh, situation at the Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Uh, and he also won an Emmy for the 1984 version of A Streetcar Named Desire with uh, Anna Margaret. And he also shot The Thornbirds, you know, the, the miniseries. So, you know, incredible career, uh, and definitely uh, sad to see him uh, move on, but, uh, you know, great legacy he left behind. And then the other cinematographer we lost, age 72, and I might be mispronouncing his last name, I'm not sure, but Jacques Haitkin, H-A-I-T-K-I-N, maybe it's Haitkin. But um, he was, you know, you just look at his filmography and just incredible, uh, the films he shot within the horror genre. He shot both the original Nightmare on Elm Street and its first sequel. He collaborated again with Wes Craven after that on Shocker. Um, he shot Jack Shoulders, The Hidden, Cherry 2000, the first Wishmaster movie, Maniac Cop 3, Scanner Cop, Larry Cohen's The Ambulance. A lot of movies here, obviously, like so many people. Um, he came through the Corman, the Roger Corman world. He shot Galaxy of Terror. But, uh, you know, just kind of interesting how you have this background within this one genre that you're well known for and maybe kind of... Um, slightly lower budget you know these aren't super low budget movies but they are definitely lower budget movies but also you can transition back and forth between that and uh the world of uh you know bigger budget big budget hollywood epics because um haken uh, also shot second unit on a lot of huge films like fast and several of the fast and furious franchise um x-men first class a lot of the marvel movies so he was someone who is obviously you know uh, highly capable and highly trusted, but just when he was the one shooting uh, principal photography, obviously, you know, he did, you know, it seemed that um, horror was kind of his uh, his his niche, what he really did a lot in. And he was uh, predeceased by his wife, Ann Coffey, who was a uh, assistant camera operator, but who worked on a lot of his movies with him, including Galaxy of Terror. So, um, you know, again, you know, just these are, you know, incredible, uh, incredible resume if you're a fan of horror to see what he what he shot back in the day. Someone though who did not 
pass away, who we'll uh, touch on, is Roger Corman, who celebrated his 97th birthday. Um, the legendary uh, filmmaker, uh, his birthday was on the 5th. And I'm sure, unless you've been living under a rock, you know who Roger Corman is. But in case you don't, I mean, you could argue that he is um, one of the most important filmmakers in terms of his contributions to the industry of, what, like the 60s through the 80s. I mean, so if you look at what Corman accomplished, you know, just a, you know, a look back at his career, you know, he starts as... Uh, after, you know, after he gets his feet wet, you know, he worked at, you know, Fox as like a story editor and then he, uh, produced a couple, uh, movies. Um, but then he got, got his hands into directing and ended up being a director producer who from the first movie he directed, which was a Western called Five Guns West came out in 1955 up until the uh, last movie he directed before going on a hiatus from directing which was the 1971 film Von Richthofen and Brown about the Red Baron, directed almost 50 movies in that 16-year uh, time period. And that's really kind of like, if you look at it, that's kind of like the first phase of his career. It's basically, as, as a truly a director, he was also producing all his stuff. I mean, and it's just incredible how prolific he was. In 1957 alone, eight movies, eight movies he had uh released that year that he directed and he worked in you know all kinds of genres i think you could definitely see a difference between the 50s and 60s stuff in the 50s you know he's doing you know doing sci-fi and horror but also he was doing like westerns and juvenile delinquents movies he did a couple gangster films and in that batch you know those early films you know i'd say that some of my favorites are like it conquered the world which is the um one where uh lee van cleef uh allow you know is basically enabling uh an alien to come to earth and uh basically take over the minds of the inhabitants of the small town near a military base uh really um really key, turning a blind eye to how dangerous this creature is um which is something that is not going over the head of his scientific colleague played by peter graves and that's just like it's just a really fun uh you know very pulpish uh movie plays a lot plays like a, a really good like a, a pulp novel pulp story uh, of the era and so that's a really fun one day the world ended too that's a good one about the uh survivors of a global nuclear war you know hiding out in this um house in a valley uh where they're being uh, stalked by a, a mutant and uh then you get into like uh 1959 that's when he does a bucket of blood in the 1960 the little shop of horrors um, where he starts delving into to comedy, really. And, you know, it's this black humor. Uh, if you're not familiar with, um, I'm sure most people are familiar with Little Shop of Horrors because it, you know, spawned the famous uh, off-Broadway musical, which itself was made into a big-budget film in the 80s. But the original, you know, of course, that's, you know, it's about a, uh, this uh, nebbish kind of a guy played by Jonathan Hayes, you know, one of Roger Corman's stock actors who... Ends up developing, he works at a greenhouse, he ends up developing this uh, plant which, named Audrey, which ends up uh, being carnivorous. Um, and so he finds himself having to procure dead people to feed it, and it keeps growing more and more. And But then prior the year prior to that, Corman, with the same screenwriter, Charles B. Griffith, had made a, a film of a similar tone, A Bucket of Blood, which I actually think I like that one a little bit more. Um, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, of course, has the bigger legacy. It was also kind of 
has this great reputation for being the film that Corman shot in two days, uh, which you know is insane. Uh, it's a little bit of fudging there. He basically shot all the interiors, which is most of the movie in two days, and then went out and got the, um, I think the exterior night shots of them running around outside later. But he said, you know, Corman said that he just wanted to see if it could be done. It was like, that was kind of the challenge he gave himself. And it's insane that he, he did that. It just, you know, speaks to his skills. But A Bucket of Blood, which came out the year before, um, that's about uh, a uh, a waiter at a uh, beat coffee shop who wants to really uh, prove to the people who go there um, and who, uh, you know, frequent that place that he has artistic skills and uh, that he's an accomplished, can be an accomplished sculptor. And then through a series of events ends up um, producing sculptures that are uh, basically casts of dead people and animals and then becomes this acclaimed artist, uh, but has to, of course, find a way to keep producing uh, this artwork. And uh, that one stars Dick Miller, who, again, another one of Corman's really famous uh, stock characters. It's hilarious. It's, I mean, I, I love the, the Beatnik era, don't get me wrong, but it's also really... Um, it's laugh out loud the ways in which they kind of poke fun at that 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 scene, and those kind of films. It's interesting because they kind of they represent a new um, kind of like a new genre, new tone that Corman was kind of getting into. But they're also kind of like a represent kind of like the pivot point too, because then you get into the '60s with Corman, and again he's still doing low budget stuff, films of a lower of a lower budget, but he's also starting to tackle bigger productions. You know, that's when, you know, you start to see him do his series of Edgar Allan Poe films, most of which starred Vincent Price, which was, you know, he shot in color. There are some of the bigger budgets he was working with. You know, Vincent Price, you know, was a big actor for him to get in those movies. And also they, you know, some of them had like, you know, Karloff and Basil Rathbone. And those were movies that were getting, um, you know, good critical reviews uh, at that time. And it was also in the 60s that he did his uh, social, you know, social drama the intruder uh which dealt with racism and which was one of the very few films corman ever directed that uh was not profitable um but yeah that of that kind of cycle of his career i i, I really love pit and the pendulum i think that's my favorite of the poe films um oh definitely the favorite of the poe films but i'd say i'd say it's you know probably my favorite definitely my favorite i'd say of his 60s work of corman's 60s work i mean that's just an incredible film it, it really gets the the kind of almost um, hypnotic, psychotic nature of Poe's work. Um, the score by Les Baxter is incredible. I'm a big fan of Les Baxter, not just as a music composer uh, for films, but also just as a an artist in general. It's a great score. It's you know, Price is excellent, and it has Barbara Steele, who is you know the queen of uh, '60s European horror, uh, appearing in this film, and of course, just incredibly gorgeous woman. Um, so I think that's kind of like, to me, uh, the, the best of those, uh, Poe works and the best of those sixties works. But, you know, again, so you have, um, Corman going right along, you know, directing films there, you know, again, his stuff, even though it was, you could call it schlock, you could call it low budget, you could call it uh drive in John or whatever. There's definitely a better quality to it in terms of like, storytelling and directing and pace you know we kind of talked about this a little while we mentioned Burt I. Gordon passing and again no disrespect to Burt I. Gordon I love a lot of his films but 
they just didn't have that same energy, even though he was kind of like one of the go-to directors of the 50s and 60s, the same time period in terms of genre film. And they both worked at a lot of their product was both came from American International Pictures, the same studio. There was just something different to Corman. It's, you can see how he uh, went on to, to bigger and bigger things Corman did. Um, and it's interesting because his background prior to filmmaking was in engineering. You know, he was an engineering student. So it makes sense that he'd be able to get this stuff done on time and, you know, be really precise and methodical about things. Um, as you get into the, you know, you start getting to the 60s, the later, six, later part of the 60s, you know, he does uh, The Wild Angels, the biker film, which kind of, uh, you know, preceded Easy Rider and was one of the first biker movies. He did The Trip about LSD. Um, he started to get frustrated, though, because his films were starting to get tampered with a little bit. Um, they kind of tampered with the ending of The Trip. The, the guys at AIP did that. Um, they tampered with... Um, another film he did called Gas, which is kind of like a, a this a mixture of sci- it's like a post-apocalyptic comedy, basically dealing with the counterculture. Um, and so uh, he then did Von Richthofen and Brown, which was his World War One film, and then took a break from directing. Now he had already started by this time, Corman producing movies for other directors. He had already been doing that, and um, but coming into the 70s he basically started his own production company new world pictures and just that's what he did he just did producing he put directing aside um and of course new world pictures was like you know an independent film powerhouse of genre movies throughout the 70s into the early 80s i mean it gave us movies everything from death race 2000 you know which again is a it's a science fiction movie it's an action movie but it also has that same satirical humor you saw in little shop and bucket of blood you know he did the um you know, uh, rock and roll high school with the Ramones, you know, which is a uh, cult classic of uh, punk movies, uh, films like Battle Beyond the Stars and uh, his nurses films. But he was interesting because Corman was a big fan of European art house cinema too. So even though he was doing this drive-in fair, he was also uh, responsible for the American release of a lot of f- critically acclaimed Academy Award-winning uh, European films, stuff like you know Bergman's Cries and Whispers and um, Fellini's uh, Amarcord. Um, so he's doing that at the same time and it's really kind of during this era, well, actually throughout his whole career, really, but you know, especially as you get into like the, the mid sixties and then throughout the whole seventies era where you see him basically be really, um, give rise to what has been affectionately dubbed the Roger Corman school of filmmaking. And when you look at, um, basically like all the major filmmakers of like the, the 70s and going into the 80s, like so many of them, so many of them uh, got their start working for Roger Corman because Corman's whole thing was like he'd give anyone uh, a chance to to make a film. Um, he'd be upfront with them. He'd say you're not going to have a lot. Of, you're not going to have a lot of money to make the movie you're going to make, but if you do good by, you know, you come in on time and you make a, uh, a solid film um, under kind of my you know or my oversight, you, you know, you'll definitely have the ability to go on and do you know bigger things. So you think of directors, the directors who came up through Corman were like, you know, early on it was Coppola who started working with, Francis Ford Coppola who started working with Corman in the early 60s. And then Peter Bogdanovich, um, his first two movies he directed were, were Corman produced. You know, uh, you know Coppola's Dementia 13 was a Corman film. And then it was just from there, going into the 70s, Jonathan Demme, who would go on to direct Silence of the Lambs. You know, Joe Dante, who would go on to do uh, the Gremlins movies. Um you know, Martin Scorsese, uh, 
Curtis Hansen, who would go into L.A. Confidential. Ron Howard became became a director, transitioned from acting to directing under under Corman's watch. James Cameron, of course, you know, huge, you know, one of the biggest directors out there today. And it just goes on and on. Also, you know, actors, you know, obviously one of the big examples being Jack Nicholson, who, um, you know, Corman gave him his the start to his career, his first film, uh, The Crybaby Killer, 1958, I believe, was uh, produced by Corman. So, yeah, I mean, you look at what Corman did, you know, not only did he direct these films that are highly regarded, like the Little Shop of Horrors and the Edgar Allan Poe movies, not only did he introduce uh, American audiences to a lot of foreign films, but he also, through uh, giving people a chance to work at his company, even if he was, you know, upfront that it wasn't going to be with much money under the best conditions, he basically uh, gave rise to this whole generation uh, of filmmakers, which in turn have been hugely uh, impactful in the industry. Um, there's a really uh, entertaining documentary that came out about, I don't know, within the last 10 years-ish uh, about Corman called Corman's World, Exploits of a Hollywood Rebel. And it's cool because they really did get interviews with just about everybody who uh, was who still alive who had been connected to Corman. Um, so definitely check that out if if. You, if you get a chance, uh, Corman did return to directing one time um, after after taking that hiatus, and that was in uh, 1990 for Frankenstein Unbound. But other than that, he just he's just stuck to producing. You know, I mean, eventually in the 80s, you know, Corman, you know, saw the writing on the wall. He when he saw the success of Jaws and Star Wars, he he you know, he's commented about this that he basically you know realized that the the big studios are now making the kind of films that I make, except they've got this huge budget to do it with. You know, in other words, you know, we used to have the uh, the pulp movies. We used to have the horror and the schlock. And now basically the big studios are going to make those kind of movies, but put a whole lot more money into it. And so, you know, he sold off New World Pictures in the 80s. It started a new company, though, uh, New Horizons. Uh, and it has continued to remain active. I mean, if you... Uh, go on to uh, the wonderful world of IMDb. I mean, the last film he produced was 2021. And, it, it, you know, he might even have more in the works. Uh, and if you've seen interviews with him recently, it's crazy. I mean, obviously he's older, you know, and he, he walks with a cane sometimes, but, like, his mind is just so sharp. There's a really great appearance he had on Conan O'Brien uh, a few years back. Definitely check that out. I think it's on YouTube still. Um, but, yeah, so happy birthday to him. 97 years old, uh, Roger Corman. So yeah, um, that pretty much covers it in terms of what's going on. Uh, I will give a couple sales shout-outs. Uh, Kino Lorber's having one of their sales right now, Kino Lorber Studio Classics. Well, it's actually a lot of the Kino Lorber products on sale. Um, and that runs till the near the end of the month. You know, their sales, they have a, like, it's just under, it's like four or five a year, uh, but they're incredible sales you buy from their site because they'll, they'll reduce the prices on titles. I mean, I was looking at the list of titles for this sale, because they rotate them out between sales, and um, there are some Blu-rays as low as six fifty, and it's you know pretty much all the releases have bonus features. It's a great selection of titles. Uh, you spend uh, at least fifty dollars, then you get free shipping. So definitely check that out. Uh, I will be. And then Arrow Video is having a sale as well, uh, which runs into early May. And again, um, that's a great label that started out in the UK and now also has a, a U.S. Uh, branch as well. A lot of a lot of variety of films. They used to have, uh, Arrow used to have basically two lines. It was like the Arrow video line, which is like genre stuff, horror, science fiction, things like that, cult movies. And they had Arrow Academy, which was, you know, like Robert Altman movies and film no films noir and stuff like that. And now they've just combined everything into one line, but they have a lot of great titles. And, uh, 
yeah, I usually, that's usually where I get a lot of my Aero product from is during when they have their sales. Good time to get that. So check that stuff out. But now moving on to what I watched this past week, which was I finally finished watching the uh, Blumhouse Halloween trilogy, um, which the first of which was Halloween, which came out in 2018, which was followed by Halloween Kills and then Halloween Ends. I had seen the first one in theaters and um, never got around because the second one came out. It was held up by COVID. Um, and then just because of everything with that, I never got around to seeing it in the theaters. And I ended up uh, picking up both of them on four, up on 4K and finally getting around to watching them this past week. Um, so I guess the, the best place to start off is just kind of like for to just take it. I think it'd be interesting to take a quick look at the Halloween, the history of Halloween, you know, the, uh, an abridged version of it, a classics illustrated version of it. But yeah, uh, 1978, Halloween comes out uh, 45 years ago this year. Um, directed by John Carpenter, it was his third feature film. He had done the uh, science fiction, you know, kind of satirical film Dark Star. Followed that up with the you know amazing intense urban siege film Assault on Precinct 13, and then went on to Halloween, which he he directed it, he scored it, and then uh, wrote the film with uh, Deborah Hill, who was the producer. And you know, the, I'm sure people are familiar with the premise. It starts off with a, you know, a young boy, uh, Michael Myers. It's uh, 1963, I believe, Halloween night, um, and he murders his teenage sister and then is incarcerated in a mental institution, escapes 15 years later, and returns to his hometown, Haddonfield, Illinois, um, to uh, wreak murder and mayhem, uh, particularly on a group of uh, babysitters, which includes uh, the character of Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and uh, in pursuit of him, trying to get the... uh, law enforcement uh, uh, to take him seriously about the threat that Michael Myers poses is his doctor, uh, Dr. Sam Loomis, played by the great uh, Donald Pleasance. And, you know, this film, uh, I mean, just huge uh, in terms of uh, its impact on the genre. I mean, you can obviously, you know, people will debate about, you know, what was the first slasher movie and, some people will go back to like proto slasher movies like the spiral staircase in the forties or something like psycho. Um, or you have the Italian Jallo films. Um, and there can be a really good argument made for black Christmas, you know, uh, being the first slasher movie, but really Halloween is the movie that gave birth to the slasher genre, slasher genre, as we know it into that whole boom of slasher movies, like the Friday, the 13th and whatnot. Um, I mean, the movie was, huge. It was one of the biggest. It may have, I thought I'd heard it, I don't know if it was the biggest or just one of the biggest uh, up to that point uh, in terms of profitability independent films ever made. Because I know Grizzly, which came out in 76, which I'm a huge fan of, that was the biggest hit uh, independent film up to that point. And then that was dethroned by Halloween two years later. Halloween had a budget of like 300 grand and made $70 million, you know, in its, in its release, which is insane. And when you think that's 1978 money, so you can only imagine, um, uh, what that translates to, uh, you know, obviously, you know, so many people with it, uh, it just, you know, really kicked their careers into high gear, you know, Donald Pleasance, you know, had this, you know, been this really esteemed, uh, highly respected character actor, you know, he'd been stuff like, you know, the great escape where he's playing the British POW and he had played, Blofeld in um, you know the the James Bond movie you only lived twice and um, 
you know, worked with directors like, you know, Jacques Demy and the Pied Piper and um, Don Siegel and this, but this totally turned him into like a new Christopher Lee or a new Peter Cushing. He suddenly became the horror actor, you know, and of course he had the sequels to Halloween, but also films like, you know, genre films uh, like Escape from New York and Prince of Darkness and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, films that are more enjoyable than maybe they're good, but he also worked, did like, you know, Phenomena with Dario Argento and, but can, and also continued to do stuff like, you know, he was in Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog, but it just, you know, really made him into like this horror icon, um, uh, you know, after he'd already been acting for like, you know, decades. Um, you know, John Carpenter, again, you know, he he was already on a good run with Assault and Precinct 13 and this just, you know, even more so from here on, he, you know, he does, you know, the Elvis TV movie, which gets him in touch with Kurt Russell, which was a huge hit, uh, even though it's just a TV, you know, even though at that time it was a made for TV movie, um, it was just, you know, a huge rating success. And then of course he did the fog and escape from New York and the thing. And so, you know, this was really, you know, uh, the beginning of this, uh, incredible near the beginning of this incredible run he had for, uh, like 10 years, uh, Deborah Hill, of course, you know, who would collaborate on many of Carpenter's early works, but would also go on to produce movies like clue and, uh, the dead zone with Christopher Walken. So, you know, uh, this this really uh, got her career going uh, in a big way, and then you know Dean Cundey, who shot the movie, who's one of my favorite cinematographers. He had been working in genre films, lower budgeted films for a while. He shot Creature from Black Lake. Um, you know, he did a number of Graydon Clark's movies, and he would continue to work with Carpenter. Uh, you know, he's a huge part of why Carpenter's films are so good in that early stretch is because of the visual look. But then he would also go on to you know become an Academy Award nominee. You know, he's for. Uh, who framed Roger Rabbit, and he shot the, you know, the Back to the Future trilogy, and Jurassic Park, and Roadhouse, I mean, and then, of course, Jamie Lee, you, know, you have to, you know, talk about where she was at in her career, and this was actually her first movie, her, this was her film debut, she had only been doing guest spots on TVs up to this point, pretty much, she had, you know, been on, like, Columbo, and Quincy, and then she had been on the Operation Petticoat TV show, which, you know, her father, Tony Curtis, had been in, in the movie, um, and that show was on for two seasons and she was in the first season, which was, you know, 77 to 78. So it was like right before this and, you know, overnight she becomes this, you know, a scream queen, a uh, horror icon, really kind of like the, you know, the definitive horror actress, uh, for the generation. And of course her mother, <laughs> Janet Lee, had the, the famed actress had, you know, been the had had the iconic role in psycho so it's really interesting how that kind of like legacy um was passed down and of course lee was nominated her got her sole oscar nomination for psycho but you know curtis she would of course collaborate again with carpenter on uh the fog and you know she's you know a couple of the halloween movies but then also horror movies like prom night and terror train but then of course you know she started branching out and didn't just stay in in the horror um realm she started doing movies like you know trading places and um a fish called wanda and uh true lies and of course now she's an academy award winner you know, this um this past awards uh winning for everything everywhere all at once for best supporting actress um so just you know this this was the really kind of like the beginning uh, this was the beginning of her film career and and um so yeah i mean this movie it was major 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 influence on the genre huge financial hit and really uh really set off the careers of a lot of the people involved with it and so obviously they came out with a sequel <laughs> you know it was, uh 1981 they did halloween 2 which picks up on the you know literally as the first film ends and i love halloween 2 you know uh you know carpenter didn't direct that one but he did um 
he and uh, Hill wrote it. He wrote the script. Rick Rosenthal, who you know directed the uh, that Sean Penn film Bad Boys, he directed it. And um, you know the the idea that Carpenter had for this was that this would really be the last Michael Myers movie. That this would really at the end, you know, because uh, you know no spoiler alert, I guess if you've never seen Halloween, but the film ends with Michael Myers, you know, kind of disappearing. You think he's dead, then he disappears. And Carpenter was really wanted to just really kill the character off with Halloween too. and it, it's a great film. You know, I had revisited it a couple of years ago having, it wasn't the first, obviously the first time I'd seen it, but it was just really incredibly how, how well it's made. And, you know, yeah, it does have, um, the whole thing kind of forced into the, um, the script about, uh, in, in that film in Halloween two of where you're finding out that Laurie Strode is actually the sister of Michael Myers, which was something that, you know, even Carpenter said, he basically just took that from Empire Strikes Back, you know, Luke, I am your father just as a way to kind of, I think it was just kind of to give some motivation to Mike Myers, Michael Myers. Um, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, and just, it's kind of even put into the film in a ham-fisted kind of way. Um, but really you could just ignore it. It really doesn't really have any bearing on the quality of the movie. Um, but it's just, you know, just a really entertaining, well-made film. And of course, famously, uh, after, you know, feeling that Michael Myers was done and put to bed, uh, Carpenter's goal was to then continue to make Halloween movies with the Halloween title, but then to have each one be set at Halloween time, but with its own self-contained story, which is how in 1982, the uh, year after, we ended up with Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Um, and again, uh, you know, Carpenter's involved in these movies, Deborah Hill's involved in these films, um, and Halloween 3, you know, the premise of that film, um, it has to do with uh, uh, this uh, <laughs> um, doctor played by Tom Atkins, uh, one of Carpenter's go-to guys, getting a, a lead role, great actor. Uh, he he uh, uncovers a plot um, to basically utilize these children's Halloween masks made by this one company um, that have these chips in them with pieces of Stonehenge inside the chips Uh, There's a plot to utilize these masks to basically kill tons of children on Halloween night, uh, tons of trick-or-treaters as a human, as like a druidic human sacrifice. Um, And the film came out um, and people, you know, just were not, they were like, you know, enraged. They're like, you know, where's, (laughs) where's Michael Myers and all this? I mean, Halloween 2 had, you know, it hadn't been as successful as the first one, but it had done good business. And actually, Halloween 3, it did make, you know, it, it was profitable. It made over uh, $14 million at the box office on a, on a budget of two and a half, roughly. Um, but it was, you know, the lowest grossing of the franchise, and critics just looked at it as like this gorathon, and fans of the franchise were like basically pissed off because Michael Myers isn't in the movie. And of course, now it's looked at in the context as this really great horror movie. <clears throat> you know, people have have gotten past all that to look back at it and say, "Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, Michael Myers isn't in it," and so maybe in a way, it's not really a Halloween movie, but it is a, a really fun, great movie with you know great great gore effects and really memorable scenes. I mean, I remember seeing part of this on like TNT late at night when I was a kid. Um, and it really creeped me out. I mean, it was uh, it's a it's a really fun movie. It's probably the Halloween movie I watch the most, actually. Um, I go to the most. 
So after that, uh, that came out in '82. Um, you know, there, you know, Carpenter looked at the idea of bringing back Myers because that was what they wanted to do. You know, that was the idea is that people people wanted Michael Myers back. If there's going to be a Halloween four, Michael Myers has to come back. And you know, initially, kind of Carpenter kind of you know, headed in that direction. But basically he and Deborah Hill, long story short, is they're like, we're done. We're done with the Halloween movies. Uh, you know, they they sold their out, you know, kind of like their interest in having to be part of the franchise anymore. Um, and if you listen to, there's a really great podcast I listen to called Best Movies Never Made. They did an episode where they talked about uh, what Carpenter's vision would have been for uh, Halloween 4, bringing back Michael Myers for Halloween 4. And... Um, you know, can't say that we really lost out on anything based on what I heard on the episode because it sounded a little um, ridiculous. But uh, we did eventually get a Halloween 4. It didn't happen until 1988. So basically, like, right along, uh, you know, the when the, the financial heavyweights behind the Halloween franchise, it was a producer named Mustafa Akkad, who was also a director in his own right. And, you know, he really wanted to... You know, he had creative control involved, creative involvement with this the franchise, financial involvement in the franchise. He wanted to bring back Michael Myers. So, you know, Carpenter Hill, they sign off all their rights to the franchise. They're done with it. They're moving on. Um, and, um, you know, Akkad brings about, finally, 1988, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, uh, and, you know, brings the, him back into the franchise. Um, basically, you know, the end of, Having him and Loomis, Michael Myers and, and Dr. Loomis, uh, surviving the uh, what was perceived to be their death at the end of uh, part two. And, you know, the film did well, you know, uh, it did good at the box office. Uh, again, nowhere near um, as uh, financially successful as the first two, but, you know, did good enough for them to immediately do uh, Halloween 5 in 89. And at this point in the franchise, they're kind of, for these two movies, they're shifting the focus to uh, Laurie Strode's daughter, uh, which would be, uh, you know, Michael Myers' niece, a character named Jamie Lloyd, who is played in uh, 4 and 5 by uh, Danielle Harris. Um, and, you know, they're, they really, it's interesting because, you know, these films really, it's interesting because they, they really lack... And no disrespect to the people involved with these films, but it's just interesting how much they lack the vision that Carpenter had. And not only that, but the artistic craft that went into Halloween 1 through 3. You know, um, again, 3 doesn't have Michael Myers in it, but it's still the same. A lot of the same people are, are working on that film as had worked on the first two. They're all shot by Dean Cundy and, you know, of course, Hill and Carpenter. But, you know, that team that made those first three, they, they were very talented, very... Um, very gifted artists. And again, not saying that the director or this person or that person on four and five weren't that, but it just, those two just come out across as just very like by the numbers, uh, slasher movies, very by the numbers product. Um, there's really nothing too exceptional about them to distinguish them. Um, from other from other slashers of the day, you know that this was like the late eighties. So this is kind of you know, 88, 89. This is really when that kind of heyday of the slasher movie is starting to wind down. You know, the Friday the Thirteenth franchise is starting to uh, uh, come to the end at the uh, at Paramount, um, and this is kind of going into this kind of era 
that would last really up until the release kind of Scream, Wes Craven's Scream in 1995, where like the horror genre was really going through a rough time. No, you know, new franchises, new franchises really weren't catching on. New movies weren't really connecting. It's not to say there were no uh, successful horror movies during this kind of like this late 80s, early 90s time period, but it is at definitely looked at as kind of a weak point in horror history. And, you know, Halloween's four and five just seem like more of the same of that era. They just do not seem like, an, I mean, it's like night and day to really, when you, when you, cause I watched these, um, when I watched four and five for the first time, I went right through starting at the first one. And, uh, it's just incredible. Like the, just the drop off in, uh, just in effectiveness of the movies in, the drop off in terms of how memorable they are. I mean, and it's just on a lot of different levels. I mean, like, you know, Pleasance is still great, obviously. You know, he's back as Loomis. But, you know, the the mask even, like they didn't have still have the original mask from the first film. So the masks just look crappy. You know, they they just look like knockoffs. Um and just the films themselves, yeah, there's just nothing really um again, nothing that really stands out about them where uh, versus the first like you have all these iconic moments in the first one or even the second one like i again i you know even the second movie you know there's the death of ben Tramer scene and the ending with michael myers getting you know uh spoiler <laughs> michael myers getting shot in the eyes there's even things in the second one that are, are very memorable and really stand out and so iconic but again four and five just seems kind of very like they it's not surprising that Mustafa Akkad was driving these, him being a money man that like, they feel like movies being driven more by like uh, an executive producer, which is what they were. And again, that's no disrespect to Akkad. You know, he kept the franchise going, you know, if he had just, who knows, you know, if he had just pulled the plug on the franchise after Carpenter and Hill left, maybe they wouldn't have the, even though they were big movies at the time, maybe they wouldn't have the cultural resonance that, that allowed us to now come to these new Blumhouse movies all these years later. Um, but yeah, so four, four comes out, you know, does decent business five, you know, again, it's, it's making less than money than four, you know, I think, you know, again, profitable, but I think you can kind of see the diminishing returns. Um, so it would actually be, it wouldn't be until 1995 that they came out with the sixth movie, uh, Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. And, um, this one would actually be distributed by Dimension Films, which, you know, Bob Weinstein, uh, he kind of oversaw that, uh, you know, the whole Weinstein brothers having their thing going on there, Miramax and all that fun stuff. And Bob Weinstein was really uh, getting his hands into horror over at Dimension Films, which would, of course, you know, do like the screen movies, you know, you know really be play a big part in the horror revival of the mid-90s. Um, but Curse uh, just had a, a really troubled, a really troubled um, history. The um, the cut of the movie was shown to like a test audience, um, which did not go over well. Uh, there were major reshoots done on the movie, um, and by the time they went to the reshoots, Donald Pleasance, who had already been ill, he passed away. Uh, they had to get a different actor for Michael Myers for the reshoots, a different cinematographer, uh, and then you basically end up with two completely different cuts of the movie. The and the the one with the reshoots, which was the one that Dimension Films was really putting their stamp on. That's what ended up getting released. Uh, the other version which is referred to as the producer's cut um that did eventually get a get a home home video release but uh yeah it was just the film went through a really rough time you know again it was made for like you know five mil made 15 mil you know so it made some money a little bit of money even if you factor in like marketing but it's it wasn't like anything big and i think that you know you know audience the the fans of the genre of the franchise i'm sorry really kind of look at that as one of the low points in 
in the franchise. But this all paved the way for the next entry in the series, which came out in 98 on the 30th anniversary uh, of the original movie's release, and that being Halloween H2O 20 years later, which saw Jamie Lee Curtis return to the franchise. And, you know, she was very, you know, very passionate about, uh, you know, uh, being involved in the, in, in the, in the series again, um, you know, that Kevin Williamson, who is famous for writing Scream and Scream 2, he had a lot of involvement uh, in an uncredited way, involve, involvement with the script of the film. There was definitely um, effort put in to turn out a quality product this time with this with this Halloween film. And um, it paid off because the, the series, you know, this film ended up being a big hit. You know, it was like a you know, it was gross like $75 million. And, um, you know, to fans to fans thinking was you know pretty much the best halloween movie since carpenter himself had been involved in the franchise um of course this this means that they're going to want to make uh more halloween movies uh, that it did so well and, and jamie lee curtis was really kind of you know her whole vision for the film was like i'm going to be in this movie and i really want this this to be the end though of the michael myers story um and she knew that wasn't going to happen, but she basically got it so that uh, if you watch the movie, it, it seems like it's the end of Michael Myers' story. She knew a sequel was going to happen if it made money um, and that they were going to do whatever they wanted with the Michael Myers character. But she got them to at least, you know, agree to, OK, well, at least as the film is presented to the audience, at least as they watch it, you know, it should be appear to be the end of Michael Myers until you get around to announcing a sequel. Um, so at least give give it a satisfaction on that. I mean, they had a really they assembled a really good cast for that movie for Halloween H two O. I mean, um, Adam Arkin, you know, uh, was in it. Um, you know, Michelle Williams, you know, young Michelle Williams, Josh Hartnett just started now. Joseph Gordon Levitt, uh, you know, very young. So they they were really fortunate. They had Steve Miner directed that one. Uh, Steve Miner, who's Basically directed a movie for almost every horror franchise of that time period. He had directed a couple of the Friday the 13th movies, and he directed the first House film, and so he, he came on board to direct that. So, you know, that was a really big a big hit, which, of course, leads us four years later to Halloween Resurrection, which probably, along with Curse, is, um, you know, looked down, at, looked down upon as, as just, you know, a really bad a bad point in the franchise. This is the uh, the one with... Busta Rhymes, the infamous Busta Rhymes Halloween movie, um, and and interestingly, they actually got Rick Rosenthal, who had directed Halloween two, to come back and and do this one. But yeah, this movie did not. Uh, it's generally hated by a lot of the a lot of the people who who watch the Halloween franchise, and um, didn't really do what they had hoped for at the box office. And that was that that was kind of put an end to the franchise for a while. That one came out in two thousand two. And then, of course, uh, 2007, uh, Rob Zombie got uh, brought into the fold to do uh, a remake um, of the original Halloween. That's the direction they decided to go in and start start back from scratch. Um, and then, just to kind of you know get the abbreviated history of that, you know that that did well. Uh, he was able to do a, a second one, a sequel to his film. And then they were planning to do a third one, uh, which Zombie would not have been involved with. Um, which would have been in 3D and got pretty far along uh, in the development of that. And again, there's uh, that podcast I mentioned, Best Movies Never Made. They they talk uh, have an episode that deals with that as well, with the planned Halloween 3D. 
but uh, that did not end up uh, you know, getting off the ground. And it wasn't until the, these Blumhouse movies, uh, 2018 being the first of them. <clears throat> and the whole idea that they got with these and the, you know, the premise uh, of selling these movies um, was that they would ignore all the sequels. You know, the idea being that, all right, we're going to make this new trilogy of Halloween films. Although orig- originally it was they, they had planned, they said, we have enough material for two. Um, let's, let's just see how the first one does. And eventually they um, pushed it into a trilogy. And, uh, but they said, let's, we're going to ignore the sequels. We're going to say there's only one Halloween movie. It was the one from 1978. This is set 40 years after that. Uh, there is no... You know, all the stuff with, uh, you know, the the niece, Jamie Lloyd, and Michael Myers and Laurie Strode being siblings, all that stuff, all that's gone. It's just completely wiped out. And, you know, and of course, huge to the success of this is bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis to to play the role of Laurie Strode all these years later. And to direct the movies, uh, they got David Gordon Green, who, you know, this wasn't really a genre he had worked in, but, you know, he was an acclaimed director and uh, had, you know, had done... You know, successful films like Pineapple Express, but also kind of like more in the direction of indie art house stuff like uh, the, the Nicolas Cage movie Joe and uh, George Washington and, uh, you know, Manglehorn with Al Pacino. And uh, collaborating with him on the scripts would be Danny McBride, again, an actor known for comedy, but whom uh, Green had worked with in the past. And to produce the films, uh, Blumhouse, you know, Jason Blum's company, which, uh, you know, focuses a lot on the horror genre and is known for, you know, kind of really sticking to their guns in terms of keeping, a, uh, making sure the films have a respectable budget, um, a responsible budget, and then they, you know, end up being very profitable, you know, kind of trying to, trying to really make sure things don't get out of control in terms of costs, and they've had a lot of success with that model um, and working with some really good talent. So again, like I said, I had seen the first of these three films um, when it came out in the theater. And it's simply titled Halloween. And it picks up, you know, 40 years later. Um, and uh, Laurie Strode is basically, you know, living this kind of like PTSD existence um, and this, uh, you know, tr- training in uh, how to use guns and weapons and living in this kind of like um, fortress retreat that she's built for herself out in the woods and near Haddonfield. Um, you know, there's a backstory of her, you know, over the intervening decades, just having, you know, the effects of the encounter with Michael Myers in the original movie, having really messed her up and leading to troubled, you know, troubled personal life, um, you know, failed marriages, a daughter who eventually was taken away from her and who's now grown up, played by Judy Greer, the great Judy Greer, and who has her own uh, teenage daughter who uh, is trying to maintain a relationship with Lori, even even though her mother, her own mother is not too keen about it. Um, and as all this is unfolding, uh, Michael Myers is, uh, you know, he's just basically you know, a 60 year old man being held at a, a prison. I mean, at a, um, a mental institution, um, you know, Dr. Loomis is dead. Um, and he has a new doctor and he's going to be transferred, uh, right, right prior to Halloween, like the night before Halloween or whatever, to a new facility. And of course ends up escaping. Um, and returning to Haddonfield, and uh, you know, Laurie Strode, uh, you know, to her family's way of thinking, is kind of like this unstable chicken little character who's always, you know, trying to was always trying to prepare her family to be ready for a scenario like this because uh, of what happened to her. But they, you know, 
because of what her daughter had gone through, gone through growing up in this very traumatic home environment, you know, had eventually kind of, you know, it just fractured their relationship. Um, and so now, uh, in, in that context, you know, Michael Myers in mask is on the loose in, in Haddonfield on Halloween night. And, you know, this is a, it's a, it's definitely a solid, you know, going back to my review of Silkwood, <laughs> uh, it's a really solid follow-up. It's a really, I really like the idea that they, you know, very clever, very, very, very logical, obviously. It's kind of like, what else are you going to do? You're going to keep trying to build off the mythology of, you know, all these, you know, prior movies. No, just, you know, erase all that, start from scratch. Let's just pick up where the last, the first one was. But also to trying to bring this uh, sense of realism to it of, you know, what would uh, someone like that be like uh, in terms of Laurie Strode? What would her character be like um, all these years later? And, you know, having this whole aspect of her being like this damaged, damaged person, which I thought was, um, you know, a really good approach to that. I don't think that it ever reaches the heights of the films that Carpenter was directly involved with. He did, he did uh, come back onto this film as an executive producer and he and his son, Cody Carpenter, uh, worked on the music score but uh he wasn't you know he wasn't involved in the writing or anything like that so yeah i don't think that this movie um is on the level of even like you know halloween 2 i think that it has um, too many peripheral characters who really seem to exist only just just to be killed there's really nothing of interest to them uh i think that some of them are even kind of redundant i think they could have been combined into you know so you have fewer characters and i think that some of the time spent with them would have been better spent even um, having more time with Laurie Strode and, and kind of seeing even more of the psychological damage she endures. Um, performances are good, though. Uh, you know, Curtis is, is solid. Uh, I love Judy Greer. Um, uh, the actress who plays her daughter, uh, uh, Laurie Strode's granddaughter in the film, Andy Matichak, uh, you know, really good. Does a really good job in the film. Uh, so yeah, a lot, uh, Will Patton also, uh, you know, great character actor who's been around for a while, uh, plays um, the uh, Haddonfield police officer who had whose character in, the, in a backstory you find out had been there on the night of the um, responded to the original Michael Myers killings back in 1978. He's a welcome presence on the cast, and also a big shout out to uh, Haluk Bilkanaj, the uh, Turkish actor who plays uh, the role of Doctor Sartain, which is the um, the new doctor assigned to uh, Michael Myers after the passing of Loomis. So yeah, good, good performances there. I think as a horror film, it's kind of a mixed bag in the terms of like, you know, there are some, it's like some of the scenes, like some of the kill scenes, like for example, um, there, one of the earlier kill scenes is after uh, Myers escapes. Um, he confronts these uh, two podcasters who had been, uh, previously doing um tried to interview him tried to get him to speak because he hasn't spoken you know in all the years since he's been locked up um after he escapes he has a confrontation with them and that attack scene is uh pretty decently well done but then there's other like kill scenes where it's just kind of very run of the mill i don't and i don't mean that in the sense that uh they didn't try to do anything with those those scenes that, that the director didn't wasn't trying to put any effort to it but i just feel like there's i don't know if you'd say like a lack of understanding of what to do in that kind of a scene and it, what what it's required uh, of like a, a 
classic kill scene in a, a horror movie, especially a movie where, you know, it's part of this really famous franchise and like the kills are such a part of it. And, you know, Green not having really the background in horror. Again, I'm not saying that he doesn't have the ability to uh, create effective horror because I think, again, it, overall, this is, it was definitely a solid uh, way to um, continue the franchise and clean up the mess of so many of the post-Carpenter sequels. But at the same time, I think there's, uh, you know, perhaps a learning curve there. And there are definitely uh, some moments where you're just... Some, some of the attacks, some of the kills, where it's just... Um, not bad, but you it could have been handled perhaps uh, more creatively or even even more uh, brutally. I think you know I think some of them uh, hold back a little bit too much. Some don't. You know, there's a, there's a very graphic kill scene in the movie, but I, you know it's kind of like I said, it's a mixed bag. I think um, I think that uh, you know the music's really good. You know the 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 takes on Carpenter's original themes from the 1978 film and the, the building upon those, um, really enjoyed that. Um, you know, that was, that was very well done. Also, you know, really definitely shout out to like the whole, the whole scene where Myers is found to have escaped. Uh, you know, basically what happens is there, you know, he's being transported to a new facility and, um, you see him, you know, his bus driving off from the, um, the initial institution that he's at, and then uh, later, a uh, father and son out hunting at night, they just come across a bus in a ditch uh, and all the inmates wandering around on the road and it's all covered in fog. And that was just a re- that was a really nice touch to kind of call back to like older horror films and kind of like a more gothic touch. Um, so, yeah, I think that it was like I said, it's definitely was. A good direction to take the franchise in Uh had some interesting ways of kind of dealing with and real interestingly realistic ways of dealing with the, uh, the character of Laurie Strode after all these years, I think again, could have, could have even uh, got deeper into that. Um, and again, I think that there, you know, there are moments in the film where it kind of, it's kind of feels a little bit, I don't want to say paint by numbers again because I think that they're really putting a lot of effort and heart into these movies. Um, even if you don't, even if not every box is checked out for you personally, but there are moments where, again, like I said, like you just feel like, okay, this character, or I'm just spending time with them so I can then see them get killed and there's really nothing to them, or, you know, this, you know, those moments away from like the meat and potatoes of the movie, the the which is the Michael Myers character, the Laurie Strode character, as uh, the first has its weaker moments. Its strength is in dealing with Laurie Strode and by proximity her relationship with her daughter and her granddaughter, and his uh his encounters with uh, Laurie Strode as the film progresses, that's where it's really strong. It's also kind of like, you know, I've obviously given away some rough spoilers here, but without giving away everything, I mean, there is kind of like a major, I don't know, I wouldn't say a plot twist, but like a plot development involving uh, Myers' new doctor, Dr. Sartain, uh, partway through the movie. And that feels, to me, I felt like, that seemed a little too convenient. And it's a pretty significant plot development in the movie that uh, to uh, um, uh, get the story to its conclusion. And obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And I just felt like 
not that it was completely unbelievable, but it just seemed more of a cheat and a little too bit more of a too convenient. Um, I didn't buy it, and it was a pretty important, pretty important plot turn in the film. But overall, you know, it was a satisfying. I had a really satisfying experience seeing that in the theater. Um, honestly, I don't think I think it was one of the last films I've seen in the theater, even though it's like five years old. Because then when COVID hit, well, no, I, I mean I saw some other movies in the interim between that and COVID. But like, it's one of the last uh, really good memories I have in the theater because you know uh, some of the films I saw after that weren't so good that I went to the theater for. I don't go to the theater a lot just because I, I you know you know you're always dealing with people talking and stuff like that and uh people who don't appreciate the viewing experience but um and then covid happened i really haven't been to the theater too much since covid but uh it was a really good time i had going to see that and despite any issues i had with it again found it a really uh enjoyable experience so uh last week i you know i did rewatch that movie um but then i also watched uh halloween kills and halloween ends so for Halloween Kills, which is the second one in the, in the franchise of this new trilogy, it picks up, again, kind of like going back to the original Halloween 1 and 2, this picks up exactly where that one leaves off, like, to the second. And um, it basically follows the, uh, the, the, the town, the town at large of Haddonfield as they become aware of all these killings that have taken place during the night. Um, and, you know, of course... Lori Strode, you know, based off the ending of the first one, of the first of this trilogy, you know, she's under the impression as she, that Michael Myers, that, you know, is dead, um, that she has defeated him. But of course, it's a sequel, so she hasn't. Um, but uh, now, now the film, this the second entry takes a larger viewpoint. It looks at like the entire town now, rather than Michael Myers going out and killing this person. And no one really knows about it because it's late at night and he's in a mask and it's up in, you know, inside a house and then killing this person, that person. Now, like, it's this film focused on, okay, the entire town has now become aware that Michael Myers has returned, that people are being killed. And it shows how that impacts a town at large uh, rather than just this person here and this person there and Laurie Strode. Um, problem with this is, and it, I should also say, in doing so, in the second entry, they bring back a lot of uh, f uh, legacy characters from the franchise. Uh, you know, they bring back the uh, the children from the 19... Well, not from the franchise, obviously, because they ignored the sequels. They bring back a lot of legacy characters from the 1978 Halloween. So they bring back Sheriff Brackett, played by Charles Cyphers, who is, um, whose daughter was one of the victims of the original Halloween film. Now he's, like, working as a security guy at the local hospital. They bring back the the children that were being babysat in the original Halloween movie, uh, now who are now adults and, um, you know, Tommy Doyle, the character of Tommy Doyle, who is the boy being babysat now played by Anthony Michael Hall. Um, so that, that's cool that they found a way to bring back these, um, uh, these characters often in most cases being played by the same actors. Not there's a couple that, that weren't, but, uh, they did bring back some of the original actors. Um, I thought that my thoughts on this film and my thoughts on the third one, Halloween Ends, were kind of similar. I thought they had really interesting ideas. Uh, so it's kind of continuing off from the first in the trilogy. You know, they, they really have some interesting ideas about what direction to take the film in. But the second and third one really go off the rails, like in terms of effectiveness. Like the first one, again, I you know, I can nitpick at this problem I have within that problem but overall I, I I liked it and I thought it was uh you know a good 
a good way to go with things. But the second one, it was just they each the second and the third one each have their own pr- distinct separate problems. Um, to but to summarize, it's that they both have good ideas but bad execution, but different types of bad execution. So in Halloween Kills, where it really goes wrong is the tone. I mean, the tone is. I couldn't believe it watching this movie. Um, so much, so often during this movie, the tone is such that it almost seems like it's self-parodying. And I can't remember either the last time or any other time I have seen a movie that so intently sets out to have one tone, a serious tone. Like, you know, it's it's meant to basically, you know, show these all the characters in a very serious traumatic situation, which is that there's a serial killer on the loose in this small town on Halloween, already killed several people. No one knows really what he looks like. He's probably wearing a mask. Uh, neighbors are being killed. The town's kind of going into panic mode. Um, so it's a very, you know, uh, it calls for like a take it seriously kind of tone, a very straightforward tone. But yet so often it just was like, it felt like I was almost watching, um, a parody of a Jack Webb, you know, I felt like I was watching Dan Aykroyd do the Joe Friday thing, like the eighties dragnet, where it was like almost parodying itself. Um, just, and not only in terms of the tone of the directing, but also like the actual dialogue that the characters were speaking. Um, uh, it just it was like hammy. I, I, you know, um, basically as the film progresses, you know, Laurie Stroh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, is basically sidelined in the hospitals, um, you know, recovering from her injuries from the last film. And um, the some of the townspeople being led by the character of Tommy Doyle, who was one, a boy being babysat in the original Halloween movie, who's now an adult played by Anthony Michael Hall. Um, he's kind of taking the charge in assembling people in almost like a vigilante fashion to uh, kind of go out and grid search neighborhoods and look for Michael Myers and we just got to take him out and uh, uh, really put this uh, threat to an end once and for all because a lot of the uh, first responders, you know, a lot of the police, you know, I've either been killed by Michael Myers or just totally overwhelmed and they can't get reinforcements in. So, you know, the townspeople are kind of taking it into their own hands and there's a lot of paranoia running rampant. Um, and, you know, um, Judy Greer, of course, is back as Laurie Strode's daughter, and she's torn between wanting, feeling that like if Michael Myers is still alive, she's gonna he's gonna come after her mother, who's you know stuck in this hospital bed, but also her own daughter, you know, um, Laurie Strode's granddaughter, Andy Matichak. She feels that she wants to go out and join this hunt because of what this man has done to her family. But in uh, you know portraying the situation, especially in portraying the actions of the townspeople. Uh, again, it's a really interesting idea to say, let's look at, to take to take the focus and take it from a small group of people like uh, Lori Strode and her immediate family and expand it to what would the impact of the serial killer be like on an entire community, especially if he was still on the loose. That's a really good idea. It's a really good direction to go on. But what happens is that you have all these characters engaging in this just really corny, hammy dialogue um, and really bizarre, like I said, so so self-serious that it seems like it's supposed to be comedy in the way that they uh, 
in the way that they present themselves. I mean, Anthony Michael Hall is, and a lot of the times people that are going around that keeps talking, you know, they're kind of their rallying cry is evil dies tonight, evil dies tonight. That's what like, you know, Anthony Michael Hall's character, Tommy Doyle is, you know, telling people in the hospital to try to rile them up so that they can kind of form a posse and, and, and go out and uh, find Michael Myers. And uh, there's a similar scene earlier in the film when, um, people are kind of, when they're first hearing the news of Michael Myers being on the loose um, in this bar where they're celebrating, having a Halloween party, and, um, you know, they, they realize Michael Myers is alive and they want to go out and track him. They think he might actually be near the bar that they're in, and one of them, one of the people in the bar is like, oh, uh, let evil die tonight, you know, and, and it's just so, it's not just that it's like a bad line of dialogue when these kind of things happen in the film, but it's, it's like bad dialogue with like syrup on top of it and 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 then uh delivered in a really heavy way with a camera that's focusing right on you dead center it's like let's make every possible decision we can make creatively as a director and as an actor and as a writer to make sure that this comes as unenjoyably over the top as possible where where it comes across like self-satire uh, I mean, there's literally a scene where Anthony Michael Hall, he comes into Laurie Strode's, Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, hospital room, and um, he's talking to her, and she just, she, you know, she realizes that Michael Myers is on the loose, and she's like, you need to go find him, you need to track him down, and, and Anthony Michael Hall is literally sitting under his breath, I need to find him, I need to find him, as he, as he takes his fist and slams it into his open palm and runs out the door, and it's just bizarre it felt like a moment out of a comedy film um and it's just consistent throughout the whole film it's not just like i'm not trying to pick at one moment or another moment like throughout the entire film pretty much if michael myers isn't on the screen it's this kind of tone this this self-satire self-parody tone which is made worse by the fact that even though he's the same director as the first movie and most of the same cast is that the performances are really not that good. And the performances almost lend themselves to this kind of laughably cheesy um, self-parodying tone. And I'm talking like everyone. I mean, I think, you know, Judy Greer and Andy Matichak still pretty much are consistent with their performances in the first film. But that's really about it. I mean, pretty much everyone else, I mean, even, I love Jamie Lee Curtis, but even her and uh, Will Patton's, you know, he's in this one again. Um, you know, like I said, Anthony Michael Hall is referring to him. I mean, they're just, I don't want to, I don't know. Like it, it almost seems like it's deliberate. Like everything I'm telling you right now, was this a deliberate choice? Cause I know that when they went into the second film, that the guys who, you know, the people who made this were like, we want, you know, the second entry to be like an action film. It's lots of killing. It has a different vibe, a different tone. And when we get to the third one, we're going to have a different tone for that. But like, in an attempt to make the film, I think there was definitely a deliberate um, decision made to make the film over the top in terms of its violence and killing, you know, to make sure it was really amped up. I don't mean over the top in terms of like being uh, laughable, but I think they definitely wanted the second film to be amped up in terms of like its, its, um, uh, its physical impact. But I almost feel like somehow they lost sight of things in making this movie, and they're like, all right, we're going to really amp this up, and we're going to really make it more intense and more brutal and more bloody. But somehow that kind of, like, leaked out into, like, their approach to even, like, 
dialogue scenes and dramatic scenes and guiding performances and writing out lines for people to say and directing it and where they put their shots. I mean, even the background actors. This is some of the worst background acting. Uh, and I hate to say stuff like that because, like I said, I don't want, I'm not trying to sound judgmental. Like, you know, I, again, as an act, as a as a director, I'm not trying to say like, you know, oh man, I could have done so much better or anything like that. You know, I. Uh, but I'm just calling it for what it is as a viewer. You know, it's bad. It's bad. It's really bad. Like the background acting is bad. Um, and so I can only think when you have this misfiring on so many different uh, points and all these misfires are of the same ilk and that they, it's a tonal issue. I can, I feel like the only, the logical conclusion is that this was the result of intentional choices by the director with unintentional consequences that this was a director trying to make sure that action and violence hit really hard and which makes sense right because we one of the things we talked about i talked about with the last film was that i felt like it didn't always hit hard enough with the horror scenes with the kill scenes and it's like in this film the director's like oh i'm gonna make up for that i'm gonna approach these with much more intensity but somehow in doing that, the director was unable to moderate their approach so that those action scenes, those action beats, those kill beats were more intense without everything else, without all the dialogue scenes and suspense scenes and, and dramatic scenes, without those also going, becoming something over the top. It was like they were unable to, the director was unable to moderate his approach towards different parts of the movie. It was, it's like he took one uniform approach to everything, and it works for the kill scenes, it works for the violence, it works for the action, but for everything else, it just becomes this like um, operatic, unenjoyably operatic mess. It was really jarring. It was really bizarre. I got to be honest with you, watching it. And like I said, the kill scenes, the action scenes, I mean, basically, again, when Michael Myers is on the screen, you're good. Um, there's a, you know, a great, uh, great ideas at the um near the beginning of the film again some spoilers here you know at the end of the when we when last we saw michael myers he was in a burning house uh in at the end of the first uh, film in this trilogy so um this this film near the beginning of it one of the early um scenes has you know firefighters responding to this house um just thinking it's a house fire um and michael myers emerging from the house um and he ends up doing battle with the firefighters who of course because of their because of their trade they have you know uh, equipment of the trade that could also be used as weapons like pry bars and fire axes and you know the saws used to like you know cut away beams and rescue people from cars and it's a really great idea of like okay what's the logical thing that would happen uh if we had michael myers seemingly die in a house on fire well firefighters would go there and firefighters have lots of things that could be used as weapons and it's a great setup for a fight scene and it's incredibly well filmed with like you know the house is burning but there's also like water everywhere from hoses you know so stuff like that is really um really well done um and there's some other good action moments too, but yeah, like I said, it's just it's such a tonal mess. Um, and there are some, again, some not to the degree of the, definitely not to the degree of the last entry, but again, it still has that kind of issue of like, let's introduce these peripheral characters who are just here to get killed, um, which some people might argue that's just you know that's kind of part and parcel with the whole slasher genres, you know, uh, this easily expendable characters like the red shirts on Star Trek. But um, no, I think that you can't, 
you can't give that a pass. I think that uh, you still need to um, find a way to make your uh, characters uh, resonate, even if they are just going to be with you for a brief time before getting slaughtered. Uh, this film, I think, suffers from that less just by virtue of the fact that more of the characters are legacy characters, so they come with the weight of having been characters in the original Halloween film, even if they're not played by the same actors. Always, they generally are. It's really only a couple of the um, a couple of the characters who are children in the first movie who they didn't have the same actors come back for. But uh, you know, it's cool that they brought back. Uh, like I said, it's cool they brought back those characters and that they brought back some of those actors. I don't think that it's cool in virtue of itself. I don't think they always use utilize them well. Like I don't think they did right by the character of Tommy Doyle. I don't think they did right by the character of Sheriff Brackett, who I really liked in the original movie. I really liked yeah actor Charles Cyphers, who was in a lot of John Carpenter's films. Um, back in the day, he was in The Fog and Escape from New York and Assault in Precinct 13. Um, so, uh, and he had basically, I think, been retired from acting at this point. It's been a while since he had made another film. Um, so it was cool that they brought him back, but I definitely don't feel that they did right by those characters because they kind of get, again, swallowed up into this whole tonal mess that the movie has. And, and like I said, you know, a big part of Halloween you know, is Laurie Strode, and she basically spends most of the film in a hospital bed, um, which is not like ideal <laughs> for a Halloween movie. Um, and ag again, kind of with, um, they kind of start to develop the subplot in the film of her having, you know, kind of, kind of playing the seeds for her, you know, having this kind of, uh, unspoken attraction with, uh, Will Patton's character, you know, who, you know, this, this, um, a police officer character who had been in the prior entry. Um, and it just, again, falls victim to the whole tonal issues. I felt like, you know, I, I like the idea of her having, like, the beginnings of a relationship with this guy, that you're starting to see um, something personal about her um, and having this connection. And obviously they're both, you know, you know, solid performers, uh, regardless of what happens with the, with the tone of this movie. But, again, I felt like instead of watching, like... Um, this really engaging, uh, developing relationship between these two characters. I felt because of the tonal issues, because everything is just, again, self-satire, self-serious, self-parody, uh, I felt like I, it kind of reminded me more of those um, often uh, ridiculed geriatric love scenes from The Swarm, the 70s disaster movie, where it's there's like this love triangle between Olivia de Havilland and Ben Johnson and Fred McMurray. And again, there's nothing wrong with a you know, having, uh, you know, I'm not being ageist. I, uh, I don't care how old the characters are. I'd love to see a, a good romantic relationship develop. But, and, and even in that movie, The Swarm, you know, those are great performers. You know, I love Ben Johnson and Olivia de Havilland especially, and McMurray had more chops than given credit for. But because of the way that director, Irwin Allen, handled it, it just, like, seemed like some ridiculous corn pone thing out of, like, an episode of Family Affair. And it's this kind of same problems here where, you know, you have these, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Will Patton, good performers, interesting idea. You know, we got them both stuck in a hospital room. Maybe we could develop a relationship between them. They're supposed to live their whole lives in the same town, so they'd have history. But instead, it comes across like this kind of uh, almost laughable, um, you know, uh, something like out of the notebook or something. I will definitely give props, though, to this film for the way in which they brought back the character of Dr. Loomis. So there's a lot of scenes, not a lot, but a fair amount of scenes in this film <clears throat> 
which uh, are flashbacks to the night of the original movie in 1978 because they show basically Will Patton's character younger and um, how he was engaged with Michael Myers on that night and his perspective of things and things that happened that come to have a bearing on on the uh, events uh, unfolding in real time. And to accomplish this, they they bring back Loomis into the mix. And so you're seeing the, you know, these actors, you know, like an actor playing a younger Will Patton's character and stuff, interacting with Dr. Loomis. And I'm watching the movie and I'm seeing Loomis's character. I think the really the first time you really get a good look at him is in um is the actor playing a, a Will Patton's younger version. He comes to like the top of the stairs. It's like the night of all the killings and and Dr. Loomis is a shot down the stairway. Uh, in this house to Dr. Loomis um, running into the entryway and, and talking to wildly to um, to the uh, to the officer. And I was like, wow, I was like, that's pretty impressive. Like, I know they have all this technology now with CGI and deep fake and uh, there's all, you know, Irishmen and there's all kinds of ways to de-age people and do all kinds of things that I can only imagine the bag of tricks they have it there hand to kind of create some kind of recreate a young Donald Pleasance, a younger version of an actor who's dead. And I thought, well, maybe, but I, uh, you know, maybe they just like sliced out a section of him from like an outtake or who knows what I was, but I was really impressed by it. I was like, you know, I can imagine there's a billion ways that they did this, but however they did that, it's incredible. It's incredible that it really looks good. And then, you know, you start to see them interact with Loomis more like where, there's like medium shots of him and, you know, waist up shots. And it's like, wow, this is really good. How'd they do that? I'm really curious how they did it. And so I was watching the making of on the disc and it turns out they didn't use any CGI. They didn't take anything from any other movies. It's turned out that um, in trying to figure out how to um, have a young, uh, a young Donald Pleasance back in this film, how to have a Dr. Loomis back in this film and considering their options for that, they just looked around and realized that one of their crew members, a guy in the art department, I believe, looked just like Donald Pleasance. <laughs> and so they just, they took him and they added makeup to him to uh, enhance that and, you know, put him in the outfit from the original movie and just had him act like Donald Pleasance. And then, of course, you know, a different voice artist, you know, mimicking Donald Pleasance, dubbed over the dialogue. And it was like incredible. It's like one of the highlights of the movie is all the Luma stuff because it's so crazy the degree to which they recreated Donald Pleasance in this movie without any using any real footage of Donald Pleasance without using CGI or deep fake technology and obviously you can only get away with that right for so long because you know the guy's not an actor you know he's he's a crew member and so you know you're trying to get him basically to in these very short short moments basically imitate, give an imitation, a mimicry of, of Donald Pleasance, it'd be difficult, you know, for him to pull that off for an entire film. You know, I mean, it's not impossible, I guess, but it would it'd be very difficult. And um, so they, they really did a good job of doing as much of that as they could get away with in the film, as using, using this person as much as possible and framing the shots just right and really being selective about, okay, where are we going to use this guy to be Sam, uh, Dr. Loomis? You know, how are we going to shoot him? How are we going to film him? Um, you know, when is he going to be in the background? When is he going to be out of focus? When, uh, you know, really making a very conscious decisions so that they could get as much out of this similarity in appearance as possible without overplaying their hand. And 
total kudos to them on that point. But, um, yeah, uh, it was bizarre. It was, I wasn't bored. I can't remember the last time I watched the movie and was bored, really. So, uh, but yeah, the tone in this film was like, wow, yeah, it was crazy. I, I don't know. Again, I can't remember another movie <clears throat> like this where their tone struck me as being something so, so opposite of what I imagined that they were trying to intend. I can't imagine that they wanted, I, I'm sure if they, if they said, oh, we wanted this to be bigger, we wanted this to be louder, you know, we wanted this to be uh, more, just more. I could imagine that being their intention, but I can't imagine that their intention was like, oh, we want it to seem like it's almost making fun of itself. Um, yeah. So this then brings us to the third and final entry in this trilogy, which is Halloween Ends. And um, this film, this entry, is set about like like 40-ish years. The bulk of the film is like set like four years after um the events of the first night, which are cover, uh, covered in uh, Halloween and Halloween Kills. And so it's, you know, like four years later-ish, um, you know, and Laurie Strode has really made a lot of progress in her personal recovery. She's writing a book about her experiences with Michael Myers just to kind of, like, for her benefit and for the benefit of other people who she feels is going through these kind of things, uh, who's gone through, like, you know, trauma like this, um... You know, she's living with her her granddaughter, Andy Matichak, is back. Um, but uh, as this as these events, as she's kind of like putting back her life together, Louis Strode's kind of putting her life back together. The film also ha- uh, is showing the um, the play of a new character being interest introduced to uh, the series, a teenager named Corey, played by Rohan Campbell, who is a uh, on the uh, current Hardy Boys show. He plays one of the Hardy Boys. But uh, we see in an opening scene, a very well done opening scene, it's, um, I think it's a year after the events of the original Halloween. Uh, I mean, sorry, not the original from 1978, but the the events of the night portrayed in the first two movies in this trilogy. Uh, he's called into a babysit, uh, a boy, Um the, this uh, this fan, this husband and wife, they're going out. It's Halloween night. They're going to a company party, and so they ask him if they can come over and babysit their son. Um, and he's like, you know, finishing up high school, talking about going on to college. Uh, you know, comes over, decides to watch this kid, and um, basically, you know, like, again, I'll give him too much away. Through it, through uh, a series of accidents, through an accident. Um, a horrible tragedy befalls this kid that he's uh, watching over and which he gets blamed for as kind of basically being um, almost having done, you know, as having done deliberately. And although he doesn't uh, get held legally responsible um, for what happened to this child, um, the town basically uh, as a whole kind of turns against him. He becomes kind of like an outcast. Uh, whose life is basically derailed from dreams of going to college to basically like working at his a junkyard owned by his uh, mother's uh, um, uh, new husband or boyfriend or whatever. And um, the idea being that because of all the events that transpired in Halloween and Halloween Kills, 
you know, the town was kind of like looking for someone to hold accountable. Um, they couldn't hold Michael Myers accountable because of the way Halloween Kills ends. Again, not trying to give too much away, but it's kind of like they're taking out their rage and their frustration, their anger on this kid um, who they feel is responsible for a child's death. Um, and, you know, Laurie Strode takes a sympathetic uh, kind of view towards this kid and what he's going through. And now, you know, this initial incident uh, that happened with this child, he was babysitting, that happens at the beginning of the film and then, of course, moves up uh, to the current time, uh, you know, several years later. And, um, you know, Laurie finds a way of introducing him to uh, her granddaughter, who she feels um, would like him and that there, you know, there'd be an attraction there. But what ends up happening, you know, as, you know, a relationship starts to blossom between, you know, Corey and um, Laurie's granddaughter, um, who I don't think I've... (laughs) whose character is Allison. Yeah, Allison. I, I, I keep calling the granddaughter. That's the name of the granddaughter is Allison, Andy Matichak's character. As their relationship starts to blossom, you know, the intensity just starts coming down even harder on Corey um, in terms of the way he's treated by the town. He gets picked on by, like, this group of high schoolers who are constantly bullying him. He's getting kind of, um, you know, pressure from his mother, who's like the classic nag, uh, overbearing mother. Um, and you know, this is kind of like boiling up inside him and turning, you know, building up inside him a sense of frustration and resentment towards the town and the people in it. And that's kind of paralleling some of the feelings that Allison has because she also has resentment towards the town um, because of the way they view her as like, you know, you know, her family's relationship with Michael Myers. So again, what we have here is interesting idea again like the two prior films really interesting idea like see okay now first film we saw the impact of michael myers okay well very first film 1978 film the impact of michael myers on basically laurie strode because she's essentially like really the only person who comes into contact with him and survives aside from dr loomis then we go 40 years later and we're seeing how michael myers impacts laurie strode and her family then we go into halloween kills and we're seeing how that impact stretches out to an entire town. And now in this film, Halloween Ends, we're seeing like, you know, even though it's only a few years later, it's still kind of like this multi-year effect. Like now we're seeing how it affects a town on almost like a generational level. And I think that, again, is great. I think that's a great idea to constantly, it's like this grounded way of viewing how uh, a character, a killer in a slasher movie would really impact people around them. Like, I mean, imagine if, you know, they took that approach, for example, like to the Friday the 13th movies, you know? I mean, it's a really clever way of taking um, a slasher character and a slasher scenario, which some people might look at as two-dimensional. It's just, a you know, a guy going around in a mask killing a bunch of people um, and taking that and kind of giving it this real-world approach. Like, okay, let's imagine this person really did do this. He really was a serial killer, went around killing a bunch of people, masked up, and one person, the final girl, survived. How would that impact her? How would that impact her 20 years later? How would that impact the town where all this happened? And I really love that idea. Uh, you know, it's very clever. Problem here, and it's not a tonal issue. Get into that in a sec, uh, the tone of this film, which is, you know, was not an issue. The problem is, is that it's a Halloween film where they basically like, or like forget about Michael Myers. We're barely going to have him in this movie. 
you know, because what happens is, is as more and more resentment builds up in the, this character of Corey, he cross path, he crosses paths with Michael Myers, uh, who's in this very weakened, injured state, living this like subterranean existence in Haddonfield. Um, and it kind of basically acts as like a catharsis, no, I'm sorry, as a catalyst to kind of turn Corey into almost like a new Michael Myers. Um, and to some, you know, it acts, you know, his, uh, his coming across Michael Myers is the catalyst to cause Corey to basically take this anger, take this resentment and, and manifest it as violence towards the town. People become a new killer, a new danger, a new, uh, Michael Myers. But again, although that's an interesting idea at the end of the day, you know, it's a Halloween movie. I don't want to, you know, Halloween needs to have Michael Myers in it. And, you know, aside from him, you know, a couple points in the film where he, you know, he has these moments where Corey and comes across Michael Myers or interacts with him briefly. Um, Michael Myers is really just on the back burner. And as the film progresses, they try to work him in more. They try to find a way to uh, bring Michael Myers back into the narrative have him come out uh, and actually engage in some kills, but it just seems very forced. It's like, it's basically what you had here is it's kind of like David Gordon Green wanted to make a new version of like Badlands, you know, or a new version of um, True Romance or anyone, take any one of those movies, which is basically built around a guy and a girl in love and they go on either they or one of them goes on a kill spree, right? I mean, that's what Badlands, the famous early 70s Terrence Malick movie, which was inspired by the the true life exploits of um, Starkweather, Charles Starkweather and his uh, his girlfriend, uh, Carol Ann. Um, I don't know if it's Fugate or Fugate. But, uh, you know, back in the early 70s, Terrence Malick made this film with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, uh, you know, early in their careers, and they're young, and they're beautiful, and they fall in love, and they go on a crime spree, and they kill people. And, you know, that was definitely um, something that you could kind of totally see the influence later on, on, like, uh, True Romance, the film that Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino wrote and Tony Scott directed, about with Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette as lovers going on a crime spree. And um, it's very it's very obvious that that's kind of the story that David Gordon Green wanted to tell here. He wanted to tell a story about um, this guy who comes of age in a town where he is basically rejected for this act of violence that was unintentional, that, that uh, impacted the community, that hurt, you know had a huge impact on this child in the community, which he is blamed for, but which he was not really responsible for. And the whole town turns against him and it fuels all this rage in him and all this anger, which he then manifests as violence towards these same people. That's really the story that David Gordon Green wanted to tell us about this character, you know, going through all that and at the same time falling in love with someone who he feels he has a connection to, who's also an outsider and wanting to basically, you know, go off and live a life with this girl and be able to, take out his vengeance on the people he wants and at the same time have this relationship with this girl that he can just go off and live his life with. And that's really the story that David Gordon Green wanted to tell. And he wanted to tell it within the context of Halloween in terms of the events, right? Like he wanted to basically, I want to tell this Badlands story and I have to fit it within the context of the Halloween franchise. So, okay. So, well, you know, 
the thing that can trigger uh, Corey to go on his crimes behind his kill spree is he'll encounter, he'll have a, a, a encounter with Michael Myers and the foundation for his character being willing to go on this kill spree and, and crime spree is that, um, you know, he, the town has turned their back on him because they are basically treating him the way they'd want to treat Michael Myers. They're taking their, their anger out on him. Um, and so it's like he he had the story he wanted to tell, and he tried to find a way to work it into the skeleton, into the framework of the Halloween franchise and what he had built up in the first two films. But it's a Halloween movie. And you either have to find a way to make Michael Myers more organic to this, more, both, both more pervasive to the narrative so that he's in more of it and also more organic or you just need to not go in this direction, because if you're, I mean, if you're going to have this be your story for your concluding third part in a trilogy, where you're trying to show the effects of Michael Myers' actions without really having Michael Myers even in the movie, I mean, that's the kind of thing you do on like a limited series. Like, if you want to make a limited series and call it Haddonfield, and be like the whole premise is we're going to show what life in Haddonfield is like, you know, ten years after Michael Myers. And we're going to look at what happened to the townspeople there and not really be so much focused on Michael Myers. And that's fine. That works. But if you're saying this is Halloween ends and we're going to continue Michael Myers' story uh, and we're going to show Michael Myers a lot in the movie's trailer and we're going to show Michael Myers all over the poster and we're going to be advertising this as a Halloween Michael Myers film, but then Michael Myers is going to be almost like incidental. Um, and then when we do bring him into the plot, especially later on into the film, we're going to do it in our really forced completely unnatural way just so we can at least say it was he was there i mean you just can't do that you just that's not the way you do it um it's and it's something that they were aware of going into the movie because i was looking at interviews and um you know stories of the production of the movie and you know the actor who plays Corey ron campbell he was getting advice from people like John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, telling him basically like people are really going to not like you for this movie because, you know, you're, it's that classic thing. You're subverting expectations. You're going to, people are going to have a lot of resentment towards you after seeing this movie because they're going to want it to be more of a Michael Myers movie. And we're deliberately, you know, not going in that direction. We're trying to show more of the effects of Michael Myers. So they were aware of what they were doing. You know, they were totally, you know, it wasn't like, um, you know, they, they knew what they they were aware of the ramifications of their approach, but here's the thing, just because you're, you're, you're making these decisions consciously, these creative decisions, and just because you're aware of how they could blow back on you and you're aware that you, you know, and you're, you're making deliberate choices that you feel will quote unquote subvert expectations. None of that translates necessarily to good product and good end results. And, you know, this is kind of a problem I have with a lot of franchises now. Uh, it was a big problem with the Star Wars franchise, the newer Star Wars films. It was also a problem with some of the Star Trek films, uh, with like the Chris Pine era, is this need to kind of like turn things around and completely subvert things. Um, it's like basically I feel like people, you know, it's a common thing now for people to step into established franchises and to deliberately try to find a way to take it not in a, in a direction that is contrary to the very 
fundamentals of the franchise. But then to justify that by saying, oh, we're subverting expectations. We're trying to breathe new life into this franchise. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you don't like what we did. Well, that's just because, you know, you just want the same old thing. And it's really frustrating because I have no problem with taking, you know, someone taking a franchise in a new direction and breathing new life into it. I mean, that's what they did by showing in the in the first one, the 2018 Halloween, by showing Laurie as someone with PTSD 40 years later. You know, that was a new direction. It was completely different than all the sequels, like four and five and six in the franchise, where it was just, you know, all right, well... Michael Myers was going after Jamie Lee Curtis. Then he's going after Jamie Lee Curtis, who's actually his sister. Then he's going after his niece. And, you know, they were really just kind of, you know, beating a dead horse and becoming really, you know, very redundant as the franchise continued. And by their whole approach in the first entry in this trilogy was taking the franchise in a new direction. It was breathing new life into it. At the same time, it's still that first one in this trilogy really stayed pretty true to the basics of the Halloween film, the Halloween films. And then you get to this third one, and now it's just like, ah, we're just really not going to make it. We're, we're barely going to have this be a Halloween film. Uh, but it's okay, because we're doing it consciously, and we're subverting expectations. So if, you know, there's kind of almost this attitude of like, well, if you don't like it, the problem's with you, because you just wanted it to be this thing that it's not. And, uh, no, not really. The problem's not with me. The pro You know, it's, again, not to go off on a big tire, it's, kind of, it's a big problem we have with the new Star Wars movies. It's like, you know, the sequel trilogy where they made these conscious decisions about Han Solo and Luke Skywalker that completely betrayed who the characters were. And then they try to justify it by saying, oh, you know, the problems with the audience, they just want to be spoon fed. They just want fan service. They just want to believe that these characters are always going to be one way. And it's like, no, 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 you don't get it. My problem's not with the idea of, of taking, um, taking a long-existing intellectual property and, and doing something new with it. I'm not saying you can't ever do something new with it, but you still have to stay true to the to the, the core principles of what have made this franchise, this intellectual property, what it has been for decades. These, you know, Halloween is a 45-year-old franchise, okay? Yes, you can try new things, but at the you better have Michael Myers in the movie. And he better be wearing a mask. Like what? I mean, like there are certain things you just can't do. Like you, you just can't have Michael Myers turn out to be, uh, you know, show up without a mask, right? Like uh, uh, Rob Zombie tried that on Halloween too. In his Halloween too, uh, having Michael Myers unmasked for a good part of the movie, and, it, and you know, it wasn't that. That wasn't really that great of a film. Um, you know, Michael Myers has to kill people in the film. You know, what do you can do? Have Michael Myers not kill anybody in the film? Is that going to be the next thing you do? And you're, that's the your way you're subverting expectations is he doesn't kill anyone. You know, maybe you have a, uh, a Halloween movie where nobody dies. I mean, there's, there are certain rules, certain um, kind of like uh, parameters that you do have to stick to when you're entering into a pre-existing franchise. Um, otherwise, what's the point, right? I mean, if you're not going to follow the ground rules, of a Halloween f film, if you're if you're basically gonna say, uh, you know, Michael Myers is barely gonna be in this, then why make a Halloween film? Just go off and make your your Badlands film and have it make it outside of the Halloween franchise. Just make that as its own individual thing. You know, if you want to make a Star Wars movie where uh, Luke Skywalker is some burned out cynic and Han Solo uh, uh, is abandoning everybody. Um, well, why don't you just make your own franchise? Come up with your own intellectual property with characters like that instead of, you know, having 
characters who have been defined by decades suddenly act in a way contrary to who they are. So that's my problem, you know, with with Halloween ends. You know, it's totally it's right back where it needs to be. It's right back where the first one in this trilogy is. And by virtue of that, you know, acting is a lot better again. You know, the acting's solid again. Uh, the tone is solid, you know. Um, still the same freaking problem of completely stupid periphery characters. Um, not, uh, you know, again, uh, maybe somewhere in between Halloween and Halloween Kills and how bad it is. Uh, you know, uh, not as bad as Halloween, maybe, but, uh, you know, not as good as Halloween Kills. You know, I mean, there's basically this group of, like, four high school teenagers who keep taunting the Corey's character. And they're really well played by the actors who played them, by the young actors who played them. They really do come across uh, effectively. But there's some other characters. There's, like, um, you know, the, the, the classic um, uh, ass-kissing co-worker of uh, Allison, the granddaughter's character, Allison. She works at a... She's an uh works in like a medical facility and one of her coworkers is is this chick who's a real ass kisser towards the boss and the boss is you know, kinda of like an asshole boss and those characters are just kind of very, you know, perfunctory. Um, there's some of that going on. Uh, but it definitely does write itself in terms of the tone. Um but at the end of the day it just you know, it, it's just not good as a Halloween film. I mean, and again, in terms of performance, I think Rohan Campbell does a good job. You know, I know that there was this, like I said, they had this conversation with him, like, oh, people are going to really be pissed off at you about, you know, this film because you're you're taking the limelight away from Michael Myers. But, you know, he does a good job uh, performance-wise. I think the biggest flaw with his character, aside from the issue of, you know, it, you know, the way in which it detracts from Michael Myers being uh in the film more the it's really the transition he makes you know i think you know the, the idea of you know this person basically how how is someone like this made how is a a serial killer a slasher made well you know in much the same way that um people who abuse children are often the product of abused environments um the idea here is that this is someone who becomes a killer becomes violent, becomes sociopathic, becomes insensitive because he is mistreated by the townspeople when some, he went through something. I think that's a really, again, solid idea, a really great idea to dive into that and explore that. Um, but the actual transition of him from kind of like, you know, being someone who's kind of picked on but still has a good heart to someone who's going around killing and not only killing but like buying into it, the ideology of killing people, that transition is just really just too quickly it's executed too quickly it's it it happens too quickly too easily um i think there's kind of like this unsaid reliance on um his encounter with michael myers just being like a switch that turns him on from uh being the bully to being the uh person with power who's willing to kill and the problem with that i think relying on you know just that that encounter to be uh, like this automatic catalyst um, is that then it almost, then it kind of takes away from the reality of it, right? If you're trying to basically portray this really realistic situation where someone who has been abused by an entire town and ridiculed by an entire town and ostracized, uh, if you're trying to create this realistic situation where someone like that then becomes the victimizer, um, 
you know, that takes time to develop that, you know, that's, uh, and so it's like the film basically like, well, I was trying to find a way to make that happen quickly. That transition happened quickly. Uh, and at the same time, trying to find a way to justify having Michael Myers in the movie. So they I think that they had, uh, were basically like, well, we'll just have him cross paths with Michael Myers and, you know, have them look into each other's eyes and do lots of cutting to previous scenes of violence from, from their lives. And that will just be shorthand to the audience for, okay, now, He's willing to kill himself. Corey is willing to become a killer himself. Um, and I think that that's just too easy to do it that way. Um, and then, of course, Michael Myers does get brought into the film near the end uh, more heavily, but it's just so forced. It's just like so much, it just comes across so much like, oh, we're just obligated to have Michael Myers show up, uh, you know, um, to bring him back into the storyline. And it doesn't, it doesn't come across in any way organic or uh, uh, flowing naturally at all. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's too bad that they just, because, again, it's a good idea showing this kind of, like, multi-year impact of Michael Myers' violence. They just should have found a way to make Michael Myers a part of it more, to make him more um, consistent through uh, consistently present throughout the film, to make his appearances uh, more natural and organic, um, yeah, and just to you know make Michael Myers more a part of of the spine of the film instead of just kind of using him as a uh, essentially a plot device, um, barely used, improperly used, and then just something kind of like shoehorned into the end of the film to basically you know you know, make sure everyone knows, oh yeah, we, we didn't forget, it's Michael Myers, it's a Halloween movie. Um, yeah, I wish they had done a lot better job of finding a way to synthesize what they wanted to do in terms of this, like, like I said, Badlands-type love story, uh, character analysis of the making of a, of a killer uh, with an actual Michael Myers Halloween story. I think they could have done that. I think there was a way to do that, you know, but hey, they didn't. Um, but yeah, so that's my take. That's that's sort of my thoughts on the uh, Blumhouse's Halloween trilogy. I, again, third one too. By the way, not boring. <laughs> Definitely not boring. Really good music in that one too. I think one of my best things I liked a lot most about Halloween Ends was uh, uh, the great reworking they did of a uh, one of Boy Harsher's tracks uh, during the scene where um, Allison and Corey are riding a motorcycle. Uh, they used a Boy Harsher tune and did a reworking of it, which was really good. Um, yeah, and, and uh, again on a very basic level, all competent, pro, competent, professionally made productions, you know, for sure. Um, but yeah, started off definitely on a solid footing and continue to present you with really interesting ideas, but just completely, you know, blew it in the execution. It's too bad. I think that there's so much, so much these movies have to offer in terms of ideas, good ideas, that just kind of make you walking away thinking a lot of like, oh, I just wish they had done this differently. A lot of what ifs, which is unfortunate because, you know, um, you see the possibilities that, that, that this new trilogy had, and it definitely started off in the right direction. Um, but in the end, yeah, it just didn't, as, as it progresses, it just doesn't live up, doesn't find a way to really properly uh, take its ideas and uh, manifest them into uh, 
a really well-realized Halloween film, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and again, for different reasons. Like I said, tone really being the issue in the second one and um, really use of use of Michael Myers and just overall narrative structure in, in, in the third one. But this is it for now. Like there's, they said, you know, I know Jamie Lee Curtis has said she's done with the franchise. This is really her her swan song with it. You know, Jason Blum at Blumhouse has said this is, you know, they're done with the franchise. Uh, you know, it's going to go back to the Akkad family to just kind of do whatever they want with. It'll be interesting to see what what direction they take it in next. Uh, my guess would be some kind of either reboot or I could imagine them doing like a prequel or to the original, the, to the 2000, to the 1978 one, something like that. You know, I don't, or maybe they'll, you know, who knows, maybe they'll get um, Andy Matichek back and do something with her character. I don't know. Definitely be interesting to see. And it'll be interesting to see how long they let the franchise sit before they're willing to try it again, before they're willing to pick up uh, this IP again and go with it. All right, though, but definitely check them out. I mean, they're definitely worth watching. It's not a waste of time to watch them. I would never discourage someone from watching them. Uh, definitely if you're fans of of the genre, of Carpenter's work in general, um, they definitely have a lot to offer. Uh, definitely worth checking out. All right, though, so that's been like two really long hours of me talking mostly about Halloween, so I'm going to sign off for now. Um, check out... Uh, us again on Facebook, please uh, give us a link on our Facebook page. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify and iTunes. And I have now uploaded all the episodes to YouTube. Uh, this one will be going up there too, just at the Gila Films YouTube channel. You can watch the episodes there and just keep spreading the word about uh, this podcast. And uh, thank you for listening to Carpet City Cinema. Mm-hmm.